Almost everything you and I know about goals and the theory of goal setting can be traced back to two men. They are Dr. Edwin Locke and Gary Latham, as their foundational research on goal setting has certainly stood the test of time. Dr. Locke is also the author of The Prime Movers, a book that I think that is good, if not better, than good to great. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf, and my visit with Dr. Edwin Locke is coming up next. Dr. Edwin Locke is one of the most prolific industrial psychologists thanks to his research on goal setting. So I was curious if that work was what he wanted to do when he started his university studies at Harvard and then Cornell. Uh, no, when I was went to Harvard, I didn't have a career plan in mind. And I took courses in various subjects. And it turned out I liked psychology the best. The same time, my father at that particular time, which didn't last, was a successful businessman living in Chicago, head of a big company. And I was sort of awestruck by that. And I thought, well, business might be a place to go. But then I read stories about business requiring a lot of conformity. So I talked to my uh, advisor and I said, I kind of like business, but I don't like the conformity. I like psychology, but I don't like rat running and pigeon training. So well, why don't you combine the two into industrial psychology? I said, I never heard of that. What is that? And it's psychology applied to business. I said, okay, now what do I do? He said, apply to grad school. And he gave me two places to apply. And I, one of them was Cornell. And they accepted me and gave me an assistantship or fellowship or whatever. So I said, okay, I'll try it. I'll go there. And I did. And I really liked it. And I was good at it. So from then on, I that's my, been my field. How, how deep was the research in industrial psychology at the time? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't. It was just sort of starting. My professor, uh, Pat Smith, was a, one of the first women in industrial psychology, which was already a pretty uh, new field. And the idea of goal setting actually came out of a book she and another professor at Cornell wrote on an experiment on goal setting done in 1935 in England. They said, this might be a good thing to study. And I said, I'm going to study this some more. And that was the beginning. So you start, so goal setting didn't come later. I mean, it was, it was when you're working on your- study from Ryan and Smith's Industrial Psychology 1954 textbook. Now there's a, and we'll have this in our show notes. We'll have- one of the research papers on the theory of goal setting. You did that with, it looks like Gary Latham. Did I say that name correctly? Well, that came later. But oh, they came when later. I start, when I started uh, studying motivation, the two dominant approaches were behaviorism, which is conditioning by reinforcements. In other words, environmental conditioning, no free will, no choices, no consciousness. And then Freudianism, which was everything is subconscious motivation, and I said, uh, based on what I was reading in my advisors, why not study conscious motivation to start with? It's going to be subconscious stuff later. And that's how it started. And Latham uh, came at it later from his own research, and then we got together. I'm going to pivot just a little bit for people who don't see how the sausage is made. I just 
personal preference, I like to send an interview arc to every person I interview. Guests end up saying, hey, I love these arcs. And we're going to pivot just a little bit because we were going to talk about one of my favorite books of yours. It's called The Prime Movers, which to me is one of the most underrated business books ever uh, written. I want to keep on this. I got to tell you a story about that book. Oh, please, please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, it was first published by American Management Association, and it was revised by the Ayn Rand Institute. The uh, business press would not review it. Why? They, Why? Because it was egoism and self-interest. They would not review it. That's, so it was underground. Uh, so I'll just say that's foolish. I, I think that's ridiculous. Let me. <laughs> well, that's, so, that's the culture. Let me go back to uh, goal setting. So when I think of Dr. Edwin Locke, rightly or wrongly, I think of goal setting theory. You are uh, one of the pioneers. And the first question I have about just goal setting in general, you've read hundreds, hundreds, maybe even in thousands of these short, pithy blur pieces about setting goals. Do you ever look at some of these articles written by business people with, I know that have good intentions. Do you ever just shake your head and say they're missing the point? Do you I still, don't, I don't read them. You don't, you don't I, read them. Probably the idea came from me uh, because we started in actually before 1990 in doing the research and laid them also. Not, not that they would necessarily acknowledge me, but I think most of that stuff formal idea came from our work. Well, I, I, even though, I, even though it wasn't acknowledged, I personally do because just the acronym smart goals, I mean, that's that, not from us, but, but some of the concepts, where, where do yeah. smart goals, where did that come from? Somebody made it up. I have no idea. Someone made it not, up. It's incomplete. It's not inaccurate. It's just incomplete. But it didn't come from us. That got a lot of attention because it was a quickie. It is a qu- exactly. What, what do you feel is incomplete? On smart goals, well, I have an art. Uh, I have something coming out. It'll be sent out by the uh, national organization, the Academy of uh, not the Academy of Management, the American. Uh, anyway, the name will come to me in a minute. On the guidelines for goal setting, which is several pages long, which we put together, Amer- American Management Association probably will come out in online in September, and it's several pages long because most people don't understand all the principles involved in making goal setting work. So this is a fairly complete summary of goal setting principles, how to make goal setting work without any technical language, without any experiments or stats, just the basic guidelines. I'm holding in my hand goal setting, a motivational technique that works uh, by you and Gary Latham, and it's no longer in print. You may find this intriguing, but one of my favorite concepts in the book is the relationship uh, between performance and level of difficulty of the goal. That is one of my favorite concepts yeah. because if the goals are too easy, performance may be lacking. If it's too complicated. So finding that, that perfect balance, that was one of my favorite concepts in this book. Uh, explain, elaborate. Well, if you- in, I should tell you in laboratory studies, 
We typically uh, gave an impossible goals on purpose because it only lasted an hour. They wanted to really push people to do their maximum. But uh, with Latham's guidance, we, did, we decided in real life, you can't, with one exception, which I'll explain, you can't use impossible goals because you can't have everyone failing all the time. That's not right. And it demoralizes them and then might get them fired. You know, no raises because they're failures. So we recommend challenging but reachable goals. Uh, challenging but reachable might mean at least starting by beating previous past performance. Not too easy, not too hard. And so that's our general recommendation for real life goal setting. We're doing this interview just after the Olympics just wrapped up in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get the idea that maybe sports people in sports athletes have a better handle on goal setting than those of us in business? Well, I think so. Uh, there was an there was a, a article some years ago about a, I don't know if it's in one of our books or not. A swimmer who wanted to get better was that in there? Is that in there? And he decided he had to improve by 10th of a second every three months for four years. And he finally got to the world level and won a gold medal. So it was challenging but reachable, but the challenge increased steadily as the ability increased. One of the points that did not get missed by me in your book, Goal Setting, you talk about near the end, you talk about the differences between short-term goals and long-term goals, and that sometimes we may have more short-term than long-term goals but I want to stop there. There's a concept that stuck with me just through reading your research and this book. There's the short period goal where I can kind of see the end of the tunnel, but then there's the goals where it may take too long to achieve. How important is it to have goals that are very, and I'm going to use the word visionable or where you can see the ending how critical is that in goal setting? Very critical. And uh, Latham's done studies on that more so than I have. But here's the point. Uh, it's hard to hold a long-term goal in mind on a daily basis. So those are called distal goals because they're distance. So uh, to keep going with the various steps and keep you motivated, so we recommend proximal goals, which are short-term goals, as a means to the end. Keep the end in mind, keep you motivated, give you feedback on how you're doing. Maybe your strategy isn't working, you have to change it. So uh, proximal goals are very useful uh, means and connection to the long-term goals. One of the questions I've been dying to ask is, is there a such thing as the dark side of goal setting? If you hear that term, the dark side of goal setting, what comes to mind? I'll tell you how that started. Um, there were some professors at other universities, especially one in particular, who came to my office and said, I want to discuss cheating. And I said, yeah, well, that's a valid thing. And I said, by the way, the uh, discussion of that's in our the book you just mentioned, the 84 book. And I'll send you the chapter. And I did. And then she and some colleagues went out with a vicious attack on goal setting, not mentioning that we had mentioned it first. And then claiming that goals were no good and you shouldn't use them because people cheat. Now, the way they did their experiments was to let students score themselves. 
So imagine in real life performance appraisal where you do your own performance appraisal and set your own salary. Now, what what company, if they're not insane, would ever do that? You know, they would do the performance appraisal with your manager and maybe your peers and ask you for your input, but they would make the final decision by getting information from other sources about how you did. So in organizations, regardless of what motivational methods you use, you need a code of ethics. You need a code of ethics and you need procedures to make sure the code of ethics is honored, including data from uh, other sources, uh, control systems to catch cheaters like GE has under Welsh, and then take disciplinary action against people who cheat. Uh, one of our deans was a bank president for a while and he said, I caught two guys cheating, so I gave him a second chance. That big mistake, <laughs> they cheated again, so I had to fire them. So you don't tolerate cheating in the real life. You have to have an ethics code, which is practiced. If you don't mind, I'd like to move to the prime movers. And I'm going to say a very bold statement. The first time I read this about four or five years ago, I'm thinking this book is better than, and I'm pausing, Mm -hmm. this book is better than good to great. Thank you. The good to great, again, I, I, nothing against the author, but good to great, I feel like a lot of sticky terms. I mean, you got the flywheel effect, you got the Stockdale paradox. I mean, you have all these terms that CEOs can relate to, but the prime movers is depth, lots of depth. And I'm just curious before we move on, I may be asking you to step out of your humility, but has anyone ever said that before comparing your book to good to great? No, I really appreciate it. An interesting story about the good to great because I read several of his books. And um, so he was, he was in favor of challenging out of the, out of the moon goals, you know, which was fine, like the Boeing 747. But he, was, he said the way to sustain this is culture. Now, the problem with that is the culture of an organization has, often has to change. Culture may be the problem because you're stuck in the past. Kodak had a culture of film. <laughs> okay, culture of film. Well, that proved their undoing. They didn't move into the electronic age. So he started his new book believing that our leadership was irrelevant. All you needed was culture. And his assistants tell him, you're wrong. That, that's not right. And he finally gave in correctly to the act that you need leadership. And you do. To me, the core of leadership is intellectual, not motivational. You have to know what to do that will work now and later, and you have to know how to get those things done. And then you get into motivating. But if you motivate people for the wrong thing, that's doing it good. So I have an article coming out on the intellectual side of leadership uh, in in a journal article, which was very hard to get published because everyone rejected because they wanted to, leadership is just motivation, but it's not true. It's a very intellectual process, and it's very difficult. 
The Prime Movers is also Dr. Locke. I'm rereading it about annually. There's a couple of books I reread every year. I do like uh, The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. Uh, that's a book I read. I just, every year I just plan, I'm going to reread it. And when I started rereading uh, The Prime Movers, there's something that jumped out at me, which I guess I don't remember the last time I read it. This is a book about the key traits of wealth builders. It's not about building personal wealth. It's about wealth builders. And the whole concept of wealth builders is, to me, a gigantic big idea. Wealth builders. Just, I'm going to ask you, the author, what is a wealth builder? Well, wealth, wealth building is based on trade. Okay. And I haven't, uh, or if you don't know about this article, but it's capitalism with mutual egoism. So here's the deal. The buyer wants to get the best deal possible, the best price, the best value, and doesn't give a damn if the seller makes a profit or not. He wants the best deal or she. The seller doesn't give a damn about whether he's going to make the buyer the happiest person in the world. He wants to get the best price possible, but he can't force the other guy to buy and vice versa. So both people have to volitionally agree to the deal. So the wealth builder is good at trade. He gets people to buy the stuff because he's good at making it or she and good at making it and good at pricing it, good at marketing it. So it's a mutual egoistic trade. So that's the so building is that you're really good at it because you make a profit. And the better at it you are, the biggest profits you make. And as you know, there's an axiom in antitrust laws. The better you are at it, the more they come after you. Because you're good. And it's called unfair competition. Unfair competition, other than assuming you don't cheat, means only one thing. You're better than the other people. And that's not right because we want everyone to be equal. So, so uh, antitrust is anti-growth and anti-free trade and anti-progress and anti-creativity so that people who are not as good can match up. The book is about the seven traits, and I need to be careful. I said the, I used the, the article the, and I shouldn't use that word. You came up, you and your students who help you with this came up with seven uh, traits. And I want to just pause real quickly and say thank you because many of the books that are available that sell to a very wide audience that are uh, economically successful they're focusing on individuals, whereas I don't think that's the right way to be studying wealth building or wealth builders. Instead, you should be looking at traits, and that's the word that you use. You should be looking at at, at what are some common denominators across a lot of different people. And the other thing you say in the book near the beginning is this is not an exhaustive list. So I appreciated you bringing that up. 
But nevertheless, you've got the seven uh, key traits. Now, again, I know how you came up with those seven traits. It's in the, the beginning, but wh- where did that, wh- where did those come from? Uh, by induction. Now, in, a, in an MBA class I taught, we did read Atlas Shrugged. So we did read that novel. And well, we read lots of other books by actual business people. And so I said to the class, I want you to make a list every single class of traits that you've observed by induction, both from Atlas Shrugged and from biographies and autobiographies. Uh, by the way, the list very much overlapped. So we, we kept making the list and refining the list and reduced, uh, taking out substitutes and synonyms. And we ended up pretty much with that uh, set at the end of the course. So it was an inductive course. And, um, and then we had, uh, I think in the book, there was, we looked at 80 wealth creators, not, not all wealth creators, but 80 of them, but try to find common denominators. And then you wound up with seven versus mm-hmm. 20 or 12. Or 30 or 50. And if you, if you make, if you make too many, the reader can't absorb it. Uh, if you overload people cognitively with too much, like here's 50 ways to improve romance or a hundred, or I think I read a book with a thousand, you won't get anything out of it. That's crazy. You can't, uh, but you have to limit the focus to essentials and then work out the details later. And as I'm going through your list of seven traits, I cannot think of anything I would add to it. I, I think it's as holistic and comprehensive as you can get. We're not going to go through all seven. Instead, I'd rather uh, people listening just get the book. But before we jump into a few that I do want to talk about, uh, you mentioned Atlas Shrug. You have been influenced by Ayn Rand. T- tell me a little bit about that relationship and just the influence sure. there. Uh, when I was, I was brought up religious. And I was forced to go to Sunday school and church, which I didn't like. It was boring. I didn't get anything out of it. So when I went to, uh, and when I went to boarding school, they had required chapel every day and required church every Sunday. And I was still bored by it. And the the uh, school church uh, was sort of non-denominational. So we all went and took novels, sat in the back row during the sermon. So I said, this, this is not interesting to me. When I got to college, my mother said, well, at least take some courses. So I said, okay, I took a course in religion from the world's most famous theologian, Paul Tillich. I said, okay, I'll, I'll take it seriously. I'm going to learn. So someone asked, asked him, uh, what is God? And he said, he's very Germanic. He said, God is the ultimate concern. And the student said, Ultimate concern. What if money is my ultimate concern? That is God. And I said, okay, I'm for money, but that's not a very good philosophy. It's not a total philosophy, but that's pretty much a useless course. And then I wrote, my final was on why I didn't believe in God, and I got an A. (laughs) So I didn't get anything out of it. So then I said, okay, one more chance. I took a regular philosophy course. And it was a snarling Gnarling, seething cynic who despised everything. And I learned nothing from it and remember nothing from it. I said, okay, so much for a philosophy of life. I don't, there's no philosophy of life. I, I don't see the point of it. 
So then I came upon that a shrug. I said to my God, here's a philosophy of life that makes sense. And it applies to life, not just academic, turgid academics that no one can understand. It's applied to real life, everyday life. I said, okay, now this is worth looking at. So then I read the book over and over, and then I took all the courses. Diane Rennes did. I read all the articles she ever wrote. I said, this philosophy is tied to man's nature, uh, the rational faculty, and the real world. And that's been my philosophy. This is off topic, but I hope I can get away with it. I've read Atlas Shrugged. I have the Fountainhead in my queue somewhere deep. Is is that a good book? Do you recommend the Fountainhead too? My Fountainhead was my first book, but the Fountainhead's theme is individualism in man's soul, not in economics. Okay, personal individualism and having your own standards. But Atlas Shrugged is much broader. It's on philosophy of living on earth it's a full philosophy so it's a very interesting lots of semi-left wingers like the fountainhead because it's about you know the hero as an architect there's artistic integrity you know oh, that's fine i like artistic integrity but they don't want to go past that so a lot of them who love the fountainhead don't like that but i think those are my two favorite books in the world I want to hit some of these traits from the prime movers. Again, we're not going to hit all of them. And some of these may seem obvious, but because of my perspective, and I know people who are in financial leadership, I think they'll be able to relate to some of these. But actually, your first trait is having an independent uh, vision. There's a, a line, and I'm going to paraphrase it, Dr. Locke, most people or most CEOs have one business and they stick with that, that they stick one concept that they stick with their entire careers with some modification. So they take the CEO, they have this single mindedness and it sticks with them. Is that, is that how important is that with the independent vision? I think what you're describing is vision as such. And of course doing that all your life, if it still works, it's good. But by independence, Ayn Rand didn't mean that. She meant independent judgment. And this is really, really relevant today because everything today is mob rule. Now, how dare you say one word that might arouse a negative emotion in anyone? And it's a reign of intellectual terror, especially among intellectuals. Like, let me tell you an example. Let's say you're for uh, everyone to be treated equally because you're for individual rights. And you believe that you shouldn't have quotas. Now, in 1980s, I was asked to at Maryland to be in a debate on that. Now, at that time, you could have sane debates. So out of 2,200 faculty, I said, I'm going to take the negative. I'm, not, I'm against quotas. 2,200 faculty, I'm the only one that would be on that side. The only one of 2,200 who agreed to be in that debate. My partner was a hapless conservative who couldn't do anything. Now, in that atmosphere, the debate could occur. No one threatened. No one interfered. No one tried to stop it. No one tried to start a riot. No one screamed. It was, today, you could not have a debate like that. 
you would have a riot, you'd have disruption and threats, uh, police uh, violence, just for discussing it. So that's the degree of deterioration. So most people are terrified of independent judgment. And when I it's think not of- just it's not just being harmed in their career, because I know full professors with tenure who are terrified. So it means independent judgment and the integrity to speak up for it. I'm almost sensing the term or the concept of authenticity as well. Is that correct? Authenticity is too vague a term. Is it? I've never figured out a definition of what that means. I don't know what it means. I looked at some authenticity scales, and they're completely incomprehensible. So I never use that term. So it's independent judgment based on your best rational judgment. One of the traits is having an active mind. And in the book, The Prime Movers, there's a table, if you remember it, you have you have one side bullet points of the active mind. You have some bullet points of the passive mind. And at the very end of the list, you differentiate uh, you differentiate between the two. One thinks outside the business, the other is always thinking inside the business. And I thought I completely agree. I could not agree anymore. People being able to think of business on the outside. Quick sidebar, we had an author on who is an expert in fintech and the book that he wrote, every innovator in fintech, a lot of the fintech products that you and I use every day and don't even know it, did not come from the banking industry. They came from outsiders who didn't even know how to code. Uh, they they were outsiders. and And I'm just wondering... How can you be a great leader if you're not if you don't have some type of outside thinking versus being holed up in the organization, always thinking on the inside? Again, I just think the active mind is great point yeah. in this. Oh book. yeah, totally agree. And I want to differentiate the active mind from the open mind. The open mind is a very bad concept because it implies that you're a container and people pour stuff in there, and you end up with chop suey. So it's a very bad term. The active mind means thinking outside and processing, not just absorbing into a glob, actively processing. So for all the things you look at, yes, no, good, bad, useful, not useful, potential, no potential, uh, based on evidence, not based on evidence. So it's actively processing everything. Can you, not to put you on the spot or too much on the spot, can you think of some CEOs today that you think they have that trait? It's so obvious that they have active minds. Well, I think uh, Buffett does in investing. I don't agree with Buffett's uh, moral philosophy, but yes, in terms of investing, uh, he's an independent thinker. Uh, The uh, uh, Steve Jobs, an independent thinker. Uh, uh, Bill Gates was an independent thinker. So it's looking outside, stealing legally ideas from everywhere. You know, uh, Windows came from Xerox. Xerox had no understanding of its value. So, and uh, uh, IBM had a chance to get in on it, and they went in, in the wrong direction. So uh, 
you know, uh, IBM was made famous on mechanical computers. And they were the world's leader. And the uh, son said, we got to go to electronics because that's the coming thing. And he, he saved the company. And then uh, he retired and almost sold it again. You constantly have to change and change and change and change to uh, be aware of new developments. So that's the active mind at work. We're going to circle back to goals. Once again, one of your traits is a drive to action. And so within that chapter, there's a subsection on high goals and standards. And there's something that I have highlighted in purple of all colors. I highlighted where Edison said, we're going to have one major innovation every six months and a minor one every 10 days. (laughs) And it's like, okay, that's drive. That's high goals, high standards. And I think that's, now that's, that seems difficult, if not impossible, but I I guess the people he had working around him was like, okay, we can do this. I, I, great research. You know, the electric, uh, the electric light bulb, I think he tried 900 filaments. He looked at the literature, didn't find anything, and then looked at uh, things he could use it for the filament, finally settling on uh, cotton, a cotton, certain kind of cotton fiber coated in carbon or something like that. That was later replaced by other things. But uh, it was an issue of trying stuff, trying stuff, trying stuff, trying stuff. A lot of theory building today, especially in my field, is not trying stuff. It's making up a theory in advance, doing one experiment, and then stopping. Goal-setting theory took 50 years to develop because we were inductive, trying things, trying things, trying things, putting together the pieces together. So, uh, And joke was very much trying, trying, and trying. I think there were hundreds of, maybe thousands of decisions just for what the screen would look like. On the, on the cell phone. Painstaking, painstaking, painstaking. Not, dedu- not deducing from anything. Trying stuff, trying stuff. So I'm a big fan of inductive research in every field. And that's the active mind. Because for induction, you need variation. You need stuff. I have a very simple maybe too simplistic of a mind. So when I come across terms I've never heard of, it could be terms that, oh, I've heard of that before, but your chapter on egoistic passion, I'd never seen those two words together, paired together ever, egoistic passion. But you also go on to say it has nothing to do with being an egomaniac. And that's why I said whoever whoever did not want to publish this book, that's why I called them foolish because maybe they didn't read the entire chapter. But Well, here's the problem. In Judeo-Christian ethics, egoism is evil. Okay? It's evil. So the proper motivation is altruism, which is otherism, which means you exist only to serve others. Okay? Now, the trouble is that's not going to work for capitalism. And the problem with the conservatives like Folsom is they justify it by saying 
It's true the businessman is altruistic, but we can justify that because he makes money by serving others. Not because he has a right to make money, not because it's moral to make money, because he's serving others. That's the fatal flaw. And if you read the Wall Street Journal article on socialism, it's only one thing. Socialism doesn't work economically, which is true, but they never deal with the fundamental issue. Why do people keep doing it? I, I sent them an op-ed to explain it. They wouldn't accept it. They keep doing it because it's considered moral. A moral, uh, it's a moral uh, obligation, a moral vision to serve others. Socialism, therefore, is moral because everyone works to serve the state. And therefore, it's permissible. Now, of course, when they do that, it doesn't work. But notice something. When it doesn't work, they don't change. When did you see, like, Cuba is a poor country. It's been a poor country, and it's poor all the time. Venezuela is a poor country, and it's poor all the time. Notice when it fails, they don't give it up. Why? Because it's a moral issue, and it's the moral issue is actually deeper than altruism. It's actually nihilism. Because the real goal of socialism, not to help the poor, it's to destroy capitalism as an end in itself. That's the actual goal. So they would rather have everybody poor than have anyone make money. I know the leaders are all crooks, but forget about that. They would rather have everybody poor than to have anyone make money through capitalist enterprise. So that's the dirty little secret of the socialist. It's, it's nihilistic, but it's based on a certain moral principle. Making the money is evil, so they got to wipe it out. So Ayn Rand said, morality is the strongest of all intellectual powers. And this is proof. Is it needless redundancy? to use the term healthy, egoistic passion. I would, I would say you could use rational egoism because uh, you can say there's two kinds of egoism. There's the criminal egoism, the narcissist egoism, right, who simply uses other people. And there's rational egoism, which means you're honest and you trade honestly with others in order to make a gain for yourself. That's that's what our free will book, I mean, my, my romance book's about with Ellen Kemp. So it's, so the problem is the two terms are confounded. And then altruism is also confounded. It's self-sacrifice for everyone but yourself. Or it's kindness and consideration, which is totally different. So it has a double meaning. Egoism has a double meaning, but the most common meaning is egoism is evil because you're a crook, and altruism is good you're sacrificing to others. One of my all-time favorite CEOs, I, I don't put a lot of CEOs up on a pedestal. Uh, this one I do, never met him in person. Uh, Alan Mulally, he turned around Ford not once, but actually twice uh, he's written about in the book American Icon by Bryce Hoffman, whom we've had on our show a few weeks ago. And Alan Mulally, I've heard him say this in multiple interviews. 
He'll talk about loving up on other people. He uses that term. What does that mean? Loving up on people, just, you know, care about people, you know, encourage them. Now he expects performance, but he uses the term loving up. And now he doesn't get into, I, I think it's left up to us what that means. Probably the people who work for him knows, but, but he's going to be with them. He's going to be, he's going to have their six o'clock as they're working on projects. So I thought of your next trait, love of ability in others, I was thinking of uh, Malali. And Is that what it means? I, that's my opinion. That, that's my perception of where he's coming from. But I, I think your love of ability in others, it this is not taught enough. We don't, you're not going to hear this in a management class unless you taught it when you were uh, teaching. But c- could you just elaborate more on love of ability in others? Okay, let's talk about it more generally. Why do I love Steve Jobs? And I'm glad that he makes billions. He deserved it. I love because he made my life better. So my attitude toward him is not envy, but admiration. I admire wealth creators. I admire Gates for what he did with Windows. Uh, so I admire wealth creators because they made my life better and therefore benefited. I'm glad they were acting selfishly and made lots of money. So that's my, now if I was running a company, I would love the ability of others selfishly, if they help me succeed. What would be the point of hiring people who are of ability and then getting so envious you fired them or beat down on them or threaten them? That would be ridiculous. So if you love success, you want to do well, other people who are bright and capable and honest are a benefit to you. And you should love them and hire them and promote them and reward them. And the best companies uh, do hire pretty much most of the time the best people to work for them. And if they don't, they really suffer. Because if you don't reward your best people, they leave and start their own businesses. You finished the book on why we need philosophy. And I gave you a fist pump again as I was skimming this chapter uh, this past weekend. Why did you finish the book on a discussion about philosophy? Well, let's look at the role of philosophy. What is philosophy? Philosophy is based on fundamentals that you can observe by direct perception and thinking not based on scientific research. So reality is real. Consciousness is our means of knowing. Uh, everything has a nature, so causality is universal. Uh, free will is an axiom, uh, for, and I wrote a book on that. So, you, uh, so philosophy is the groundwork for everything. If you defy an axiom, you defy reality, you defy reality and you defy your survival. Let's take a current event, the vaccine morons. Now, why should you take a vaccine? Because reality is real and the laws of biology exist. And there's a causal relationship between the virus and survival, namely exposure and resistance. Those are the two things. 
the combo package. This is a very dangerous virus. So to deal with reality in a selfish way, you should not even consider not taking it. You should take it as soon as you possibly can, which my wife and I did, which was very hard in the early days to get an appointment. But we did it for selfish reasons. And there's a second selfish reason. If you're a carrier, you can kill your loved ones by contacting them. So if you selfishly love your spouse and your kids, you should take it so you're not a carrier. So uh, people misconstrue it as obedience to the state. I'm going to defy the government. No government's going to tell me what to do. Screw the government. This is so stupid. The defiance of reality. So that's a good example of where philosophy comes into life. The whole thing has been misconstrued by millions of people. That's insane to defy reality, pretending it's the government's fault for all the problems you're facing. On your LinkedIn profile, you state that you are a retired professor. I have this opinion about retired professors. Professors do not retire. <laughs> Some do. The, the, but the mind is still active. And, and I, have, I have a yeah. feeling you still read a lot. I bet you oh, still yeah. write a lot. So yeah. what are I, you doing? You, you may not be getting a paycheck from an employer. I, but I've, I bet published, you, I've published 90 books and articles since I retired. I, I would it's imagine weird. that. I would imagine that. Uh, what, now, what, a lot of people who are academics do retire. They never do any more intellectual work. But I love reading. I have an active mind. I love writing, and I'm good at it. So I keep doing it. Uh, and uh, good. One of my last articles, Latham, was published in the in uh, Great Britain on the 50-year goal-setting theory project. How we did it. What's the process from beginning to end over that 50-year period, which theorists don't do anymore. They just say. I'm going to make up a theory. I'm going to do one experiment, and it's over. And of course, it disappears a week later. So we spent 50 years to inductive and integration. So, but I've written on lots of other things. I've written about seven articles in for Capitalism Magazine on the roots of socialism. Capitalism is egoism for all. The the mind of the dictator. How dictators think. Uh, the issue of Slavery in America, why it's been misrepresented, what's the actual history? Uh, how can we replace racism with individualism? How would you be individualist if you wanted to? And I wrote a recent one on the cause of the fiasco in Afghanistan, why it was inevitable. There's thing, certain things we did wrong. So, but, so I love writing. I'm still doing it. I'm still intrigued with your AMA article, Guidelines for Goal Setting. It's like, I wish I could read that right now. So well, it'll be out. I don't want to release it before they put it out. But they say they'll release it approximately early September. Uh, so if you don't hear by then, let me know. I'll check on it further. Definitely. I heard that the other day as the plan. It'll, a lot of, there'll be a lot of emails, including that one. So. Uh, I'm, I'm glad once it's released, any, anyone can pass it around. This is CFO Bookshelf. We ask 
everybody this question. So you cannot get out of this question. Okay. What are some of your favorite books? Now, I can imagine you read widely, you read deeply, you read on a lot of different topics, but what have been some of your favorite? Well, we know Atlas Shrugged is near the top. Atlas of the- is my number one favorite book ever. Tom Head would be my second. And I also what, like very- What was the second, please? Tom Head. Okay. Oh, the Tom- Got it. And I very much like the third novel. Uh, uh, well, actually, We the Living is a little bit down the list. And then the Anthem is kind of a novelette. Uh, I love all of those books. For uh, history books, uh, I read a lot of on a lot of topics. Uh, uh, I love the book I wrote on Alexander Hamilton. I read on Hamilton. I didn't realize how important he was in the American Revolution. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of Jefferson uh, for the Declaration. Well, he had certain errors elsewhere in his thinking, but uh, Hamilton was a really forward thinker, and he didn't own slaves. And he did help get the country started to concretizing hundreds of things that had to be done by working with Washington. Now, so I'm a great admirer of his. Uh, I read another article on uh, Lafayette, who's, I didn't realize, he's, Lafayette was more American in his thinking than many Americans were. He really was an American deep down in his value system. Uh, so I read, I don't read as many as you, but I, I'm constantly reading new books. I've written lots of books on spying. I've written lots of books on war, history of war. Uh, lots of books on psychology, not too many books on psychology. Most of them aren't that good. Dr. Edwin Locke, Professor Locke, this has just been an honor. I cannot thank you from the bottom of my heart enough for just saying yes to this discussion means a lot. And I appreciate and admire all of your work you've done in the past and you still have a very long runway. Keep writing and keep talking, sir. Well, thank you for your, I'm glad you liked the prime movers book. And uh, that's certainly one of my favorites along goal setting. My selfish path to romance is a favorite in my, a free will book is also a favorite. So uh, I don't know if I'll ever write any more books, but I uh, appreciate your reading the book so carefully. Uh, I agree with those who say, this is my best interview ever. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Dr. Edwin Locke, thank you again very much. If you have an office library, then consider grabbing the Prime Movers and Goal Setting, a motivational technique that works. By the way, if you liked the book Barbarians at the Gate, you might like The Caesar's Palace Coup, which is a tale of hedge fund investing gone wrong through a leveraged buyout and the bankruptcy process that followed. One of the co-authors is Max Frumis, and he'll be my guest next week as we discuss this fascinating book. We're going to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Until next time.